So three weeks left in our sermon series, You're Only Human and Why That is a Good Thing. And the question we're wrestling with in the final four weeks is, how shall we then live? How do we live faithfully in light of our humanity, our, our finiteness? And this week, the answer to that question that Caput gives is he says, in order to live faithfully in our limitedness as a human is we have to embrace our vulnerability. And I just got to say, I've told different elders and people on staff, like, I, I can't remember a time ever in my time at Hope for 16 years being more excited, stirred up, emotional, and grateful for a sermon than I have for th this one today. Now, that doesn't mean I think it's going to be great or anything. It's actually made it harder to figure out exactly what to say. But I've been on a 16-year journey by God's grace that I never would have started on um, on my own when he brought me to Hope, on learning how to embrace my vulnerability, um, awaken my heart, process my story, um, connect, grow emotionally, have some sort of awareness to even venture to dangerously begin to share and, and, and just talk about my weakness. And in my opinion, this is one of the things that we do so well. And I'm not saying we have the market cornered on this, but, you know, people often say, oh, I, I love coming to Hope because even though everybody might look in the parking lot like they have it together, when people share and they talk about real struggle and real issues, I love their honesty and their realness and their confession and their vulnerability. And this is really what it is. It's we're seeking to believe, to live, move, and have our being out of God's love, believing that his grace is powerful enough that we can embrace our vulnerability. Now, notice, clarification, I didn't say that we can be vulnerable, right? People will often say you need to be vulnerable. That's like a good trait. But I'm saying that we are called to embrace our vulnerability because to be human is to be vulnerable. And so in his book, The Soul of Shame, Kurt Thompson says this, we tend to think of vulnerability as something that we experience at particular times or occasions. But in reality, vulnerability is not something that we choose or that is true in a given moment while the rest of the time it's not. Rather, it is something that we are. This is why we wear clothes, live in houses, and have speed limits. So much of what we do in life is designed, among many other things, to protect us from the fact that we are vulnerable at all times. To be human is to be vulnerable. To have the ability to be hurt is to be vulnerable. And, of course, as a human, there's a variety of ways. C.S. Lewis says to love anything at all is to be vulnerable. And created in a relational God's image, we experience different levels of vulnerability all the time. And I am unbelievably thankful. Hope was the first church that I ever um, went to where I felt like that there was a willingness to be honest from up front, and it kind of broke down some of the paradigms that you show up at church and everybody's a mess, but the preacher's the expert who has it together, and he drops down knowledge on kind of the lost and frenzied sheep, but he doesn't struggle himself. And, and I'm overwhelmingly thankful that there's an encouragement on a regular basis for us to lead out of our weakness and to name our vulnerability, not just in vague, random, oh, yeah, we're all sinners, man, but, like, no, here's how it really is showing up in my life in, in tangible ways. And so you know if you've been here more than one or two weeks, I do this all the time, right? Some people even fuss at me. They're like, you, you share too much. And most of my sharing is about how hard things are, what a struggle it is, how I want to quit, how I was going to leave nine months ago, how people have left the church because of me, and just what a chaotic train wreck things are, which theologically by definition should not be surprising. The church is a community of sinners, and anytime there's two sinners in a relationship, there's going to be a mess. But I also need to make sure, because embracing our vulnerability isn't just sharing weakness and struggle and fear. It's also sharing, like, hopes and dreams and joys. That's why in Romans 12, Paul said, love be genuine, rejoice and weep with one another. And so I want to take a, a, just a, a moment to say, I absolutely love my job. 
And this week I have been so overwhelmed with, like, God's kindness and not just saving me and making me his son, but bringing me to a church that says, hey, let's think about shame. Let's think about story. Let's think about the ways you hide and you're afraid. Things that I would have never, ever chosen on my own. I even thought when I was in seminary, if I'm called to be a pastor and not a football coach, I'll sit around and just do like, you know, systematic theology studies and parse out justification by grace through faith, which is great. But the notion of like shame, guilt, story, hiding, fear, insecurity, those are like foreign concepts to me. I'm like, who, who, who even thinks about that? And, and so I, I, can't, I can't believe how gracious God has been to me in, in calling me to himself to be a pastor putting me and my family at hope. And so regularly people will leave and reach out to Stephanie and say, gosh, is Matt okay? He just shared all this stuff, and I'm worried about him, and he's going to quit. And I'm like, I absolutely love, like, what I get to do. And it is an unreal privilege that I am blown away by on a regular basis um, to, to have this job. And so that really has nothing to do with the sermon. I just want to tell you all that. <laughs> <laughs> My friend Ann Soros fussed at me this week about, you know, the time of our services and children's ministry. People are like, let's get out of here. And she's like, you got to cut out like two of your sermons that you do on the front and back end and just do one sermon. So this is me cramming that into one sermon, Ann. So embracing our vulnerability. The only way to experience wholeheartedness. Why is that the case? I want us to back up for a minute and just think about where all of our stories begin and how God early on begins his word to us and his kindness and wisdom by wanting us to understand a little bit about how we were created and why we relate the way we do currently. So if you read the beginning of Genesis, it tells us that God, you know, in his own infinite wisdom, decided to create all things out of nothing by the word of his power. And the pinnacle of his created work in Genesis 1 were you and I, his image bearers. He said, let us create male and female in our own image and our own likeness. God created them. And at the end of Genesis chapter 1, he declares God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So there's this declaration of righteousness over all creation, primarily his image bearers. And then Genesis 2 is kind of a long um, explanation of God choosing to create man and woman and how it wasn't good for man to be alone because we're image bearers and we're relational. And then he ends chapter 2 with this staggering declaration. He could have said so many different things, but he says, the man and his wife were both naked and they knew no shame. Now, he could have said they were both naked and they were flourishing and they were thriving and they were loving the animals in creation and they were cultivating and creating cities. He doesn't say that. He says, hey, notice originally under God's declaration that you were very good, his voice of affection spoken over our first parents, they knew no shame even though they were completely vulnerable in every way. Nothing was hidden. There was nothing that the other one didn't know about their spouse and they knew no shame. It's hard to even conceive. If you look up in the Oxford Dictionary, the definition of shame, it says a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by consciousness of something wrong. Brene Brown, who's a research professor at the University of Houston and UT Austin, who has done an unbelievable amount of work around shame, says this, shame is easily understood as the fear of disconnection. What is there about me that if it is known or seen will make me unworthy of connection? And so keep that in mind as we read Genesis 3. It's like God is saying, pay attention to this. This is a big deal. No shame in my original creation, the way that we were meant to live and move and have our being. And then Genesis 3, we read this. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. So he said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? Adam responded, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. The Lord said, Who told you that? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man responded, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Remember, Brene Brown said, Shame is easily understood as the overwhelming fear of disconnection. What is there about me that if it is seen or known is going to make me unworthy? She says this, everyone has shame. No one wants to talk about it. And the less we talk about it and name it, the more we have it. It is like a cancer that continues to grow if left untreated. This description is highlighting how all of us live all the time. One of the questions I want to throw out is, are you even aware of that? Like, are we aware of this dynamic that is at play? I want to read this blog from Roger Edwards. He is a counselor and teacher at the Barnabas Center. If you've been here more than maybe one and a half sermons, you know how much I love Roger. He's been my personal counselor for 16 years, and I absolutely love him to death. And the Lord has used him to help me try ever so slowly through baby steps to not live like an orphan but a son. And so he wrote this article in the Barnabas Center blog in 2009 after the market crash in 08. And he's telling the story of meeting with his financial advisor and looking at the plummeting of his retirement account and the fear and anxiety that was stirring in his heart as a result. And so he talks about the desperation to hide. He says, but to be honest, my desperation to hide didn't start with this recession. I'm always like this. Whenever I feel out of control, a scared, angry part of me takes over. It will do almost anything to avoid that naked feeling. I am just like Adam and Eve. Something comes along and it opens my eyes. It could be as large as a global crisis or as small as a criticism. And I realize how vulnerable, how naked I really am. So I hastily stitch together a fig leaf suit. And then God comes to look for me. Where are you? And from the bushes I reply, yes, I heard you. I'm over here comforting the wife. You know how she is. But I am blinking again. When Adam realized that he was naked, he hid too. And when God called for him, Adam answered, I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And with these three words, Adam exposes the sequence of all human behavior, naked, afraid, and hiding. Nakedness, which is our vulnerability, terrifies us. So we grab for some kind of fig leaf to hide. In our culture, the most available and versatile fig leaf is the dollar bill. It happens to be green and it appeals to our instinct for camouflage. If we can sew up, sew up enough dollars, we believe it will soothe our congenital anxiety. But as it turns out, 
Money can't cover the heart any better than fig leaves. It too can deteriorate or be eaten away. And it is even more prone to theft. Every earthly covering, with no exceptions, is vulnerable to moth, rust, and thieves. And notice the way he titled his article, Moth, Rust, and Thieves. These are messengers of my need. You could add on to that. They are invitations by God to grace that he alone provides. We are all naked and afraid and hiding all the time. Sitting with Roger for many years, he's, he said, you know, what it's really like is there's always this dance going on at play in our life all the time. And with one hand, I'm saying, come close. Created in God's image, I long more than anything else to be known and loved and affirmed. But while I'm doing this, I'm also saying, stay back, stay back, stay back. Because if you come too close, there's no way you would ever love me. You would probably spit in my face. And then to just add to the imagery of doing this dance all the time, he said, there's a on this arm, where the moment I feel threatened, I'm going to protect and isolate, and there's a sword in this hand. And so the moment I feel threatened, I'm going to seek to isolate and wound you before you can wound me. Now, you don't need me to tell you this. Even if you're completely unaware that that dance is happening in your life all the time, we are not created to live this way. Living that way guarantees that we're never going to experience the thing that we most long to enjoy, which is deep connection with God and one another. I referenced Brene Brown earlier, and numerous people through the years have told me about Brene Brown and her research, and I'd never really gotten into it or studied it or researched it a lot, but this week I kind of went down a rabbit hole of reading a lot of her stuff, and it was amazing. So she was a social worker. She had an undergrad and master's degree in social work and was working on her Ph.D., and she said the world of social work, we know this, is just unbelievably messy, right, that all these environments you're called into are just chaotic. And she said the phrase over and over repeated in social work is embrace the chaos, embrace the mess. And she said, but I was coming into it thinking I'm not going to embrace it. I'm going to study it, figure it out, organize it, fix it, and put it in a box. She's like, that's why I kept pursuing more research, more research, more research. She said, but everyone knew in the entire social work world that the thing that mattered most, the only thing that enabled anyone to thrive and come out of a broken situation was deep personal connection. That there's nothing else that matters. There's no amount of education, money, or any external factor, only deep connection, which, of course, we're like, yeah, we're not created to be alone, right? It, and so she began this journey of research, and all of her research highlighted for her the only way to experience deep connection or to experience real life is by embracing your vulnerability, and she hated it. She said this, th this led, all of her data um, led to this TED Talk that was released in 2010. I put it in the um, resources in your bulletin. It's only like 20 minutes long. It is the most popular TED Talk ever done. It's 61 million people have watched this TED Talk. So you talk about resonating with the heartstrings of people in our society. She says, my moment to dare greatly, this TED Talk stemmed from my faith in my research and what emerged from the data that vulnerability is the core, the heart, the center of meaningful human experiences. I mean, think about even in the garden when God shows up, loving, gracious, and merciful. He didn't just strike Adam and Eve down. What did he do? He began to engage them in a redemptive conversation that required that they embrace their vulnerability. And he was inviting them out of hiding. I love it when, when research only and always inevitably affirms what God's word says is true. And that's what Brene Brown was like realizing through this. She goes on to say, everyone that I interviewed that experienced deep connections, and I love she says this, the term for it, that lived wholehearted. 
If you went on our men's retreat last year, you know Chuck DeGroat, that's the name of his book, our speaker, Wholeheartedness. How, did, how does God, you know, um, put back together all the broken and fractured parts of our heart? She said, people that experienced deep connections that lived wholehearted knew that embracing vulnerability was fundamental. There's no other way. This is like mission critical to the core of experiencing true relationships. I thought it was betrayal. I could not believe I had pledged allegiance to research. The definition of research is to control and predict. You study phenomenon for the explicit reason to control and predict. But now my research revealed the answer that the way to live with meaning is by embracing vulnerability and stop trying to control and predict. This led to a breakdown, a huge breakdown. And in her talk, she says, this completely undid me in every single way. And it began a journey for me to experience life and love and relationships for the first time. Now, one of the things I love about that is she says, the definition of research is to gather information so you can do what? Control and predict so that you don't have to be dependent. This is exactly what tempted Eve in the garden. She said when she knew that that fruit was going to give her knowledge and information and wisdom so that she could be wise and wouldn't have to depend on God, that's why she ate. See, what Brene Brown is describing is what we do all the time. We're all longing so desperately to experience abundant life. But we're saying, how can I go about it in a way that doesn't require me to let go of the false illusion of control and come out of hiding and have to depend on grace in any way, shape, or form? I love the way one of our pastors on staff said this years ago, Matt Guzzi. He said, choosing information over trust is like the fall happening over and over again every day in our lives. And we do this all the time. One of the most common ways this happens in the church is parents getting all amped up and saying, I want to make sure my 16 or 17-year-old doesn't ruin their life. Tell me what to do. Give me a book to read. Give me a strategy. Give me a seminar. Just so we're clear, books and seminars, those aren't bad, right? But we're always constantly saying, give me the right amount of information because the most horrifying thought is I just need to daily and moment by moment depend on God with me and meet my needs. The one who promises to never leave me or forsake me, that is terrifying. So let me, like Eve, get information so I can, at least for a moment, think I'm in control. And it doesn't work. It'll never work. The only way we experience the thing that we were created to enjoy, deep and meaningful relationships, is by embracing our vulnerability. Having the courage to actually share what's actually true. I put a quote in your bulletin. I, I forgot to put this in the, in the sermon notes, but Brene Brown says that the word courage comes from the Latin word cur, which means heart. And she said, so true courage isn't doing some great deed. It's actually sharing honestly from your heart. She says that's what it means to practice ordinary courage. In other words, like when someone says, how are you doing? You're actually honest. Good and bad, right? Like It's not just I'm really struggling and I'm terrified of whatever, but it takes courage to even give someone your dreams, to even share honestly something you're excited and hopeful about because you could absolutely get clowned. And y'all know this, right? Like, like, like I hope a part of what's going on is that there's, there's this invitation that you feel from God, of, gosh, I want to come out from hiding. I want to try, even in the smallest baby steps of ways, to be honest for the first time in my life. And I'm terrified because exactly what Rocky told his son, that the life, you know this world is not all sunshine and rainbows, that it is a mean and nasty place and it will beat you to your knees. And we've experienced that. But, but the good news of the gospel 
isn't that you develop the strength and courage on your own to try to be vulnerable, but that God's grace and love and mercy is powerful enough that we can stand securely and actually be honest about our weakness. A powerful passage that highlights this is the Apostle Paul, who in every way was like a tough man's man, and he was beaten, and he was shipwrecked, and he just continued to share the gospel, and he wouldn't sell out in any way, shape, or form to experience comfort. And he says at one point when he has this, you know, physical ailment, he asked the Lord, will you please take this away from me so I can continue to do ministry? And the Lord says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul then says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. After the first service, I had a handful of guys tell me, oh, man, when you started talking about this, my wife or girlfriend or somebody's elbowing me. And I'm like, good. So, ladies, right now, if you need to elbow the guys around you, go ahead. Because, men, we, need, we all need to hear this, right? We, we all need to hear this, that, that we have not been created by our good, loving, wise, and kind God to live in, in fear and in hiding. And that is the default mode of our hearts. And the lie of shame that we're going to struggle with every day is that the only way to, to not be rejected is to hide in isolation, but this lie is extra powerful. It's like it's like on steroids for men in our society. You could argue all the way back to the garden, right? Adam was silent. He was terrified. He was cowering in the face of what was going on. But every single thing I read this week, Chuck DeGroat, Brene Brown, um, Kurt Thompson, every single thing I read made a point to highlight how difficult this is for men to embrace their vulnerability. Our entire culture says you are an utter fool if you admit weakness, if you let people see the faults in your life, and it's killing us. That's why we hear story after story after story of people who've been in the church their whole life, and they're like, I actually came to experience grace the first time when I went to some rehab or AA meeting because it was like for the first time we're not going to pretend. We're going to actually seek to be honest. It's killing us. It's killing us as a society, as dads, as men, as sons, as brothers. Pat Conroy says, American men are allotted just as many tears as American women. But because we are forbidden to shed them, we die long before women do. With our hearts exploding or our blood pressure rising or our livers eaten away by alcohol because that lake of grief inside of us has no outlet. We men die because our faces were not watered enough. Capic in his book, You're Only Human, I think I need to reference it at least once since that's like what we're using for the sermon series. He says, when you hear the word vulnerable, does it sound more feminine than masculine to you? Why is this word associated more with women than with men? It shouldn't be. To be vulnerable, to have weakness and needs is not a trendy idea. It is a part of how God has made us. Listen, the good news of the gospel is not simply that our silence and our hiding is deadly to experiencing real community. But the good news of the gospel is that God did the unthinkable and made himself vulnerable when he took on flesh in our place. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus, like a lamb led to the slaughter, was silent before his accusers, that he scorned 
the shame of the cross and allowed himself to be stripped naked and nailed to a tree. Why? Why all that intentional language and terminology that's taking us back again and again to the story in Genesis 1 through 3? It's to highlight that the gospel alone covers our shame. The gospel alone says that no matter what you're struggling with and what fears and insecurities you're you're wrestling with right now as a man or a woman, when you rest in Christ, the declaration that the Father gave him at his baptism is absolutely true of you right now. It says, you're my son, you're my daughter, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. My favor and my delight rest upon you. And I know we can say it and 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 we can like check a box on a test. But when that begins to slowly but surely seep into our hearts and we begin to come out from hiding and taste his grace, it changes our life. It's what people are dying for. And so when we think about how exactly do I do this, along with being honest about how you're doing when people ask you, when you see someone, right, experience something that would be extremely shaming, recognize I'm in a position to be used by God to cover their shame. I love this. this, A buddy of mine asked me this morning, he's like, I saw you walking across the street and your head was kind of bobbing and what were you listening to, like some ACDC, what's your Sunday morning, get hype. And I said, no, I was actually listening to this song by Tracy Lawrence called Paint Me a Birmingham. And Lucy's mad at me because I played it like five times this morning at the house. And, but Tracy Lawrence, tells this, he tells this story of um, being in this little beachside town and this guy is sitting there painting pictures of ocean scenes. And, and with every stroke he brought to life, um, the deep blue of the ocean um, there by his side. And so I ask him if he only paints ocean scenes. And he says, son, for $20, I'll paint you anything. And he says, will you paint me a Birmingham? And make it look just the way I planned. A little house on the edge of town. A porch going all the way around. And will you put her there in a front porch swing. A cotton dress. Make it early spring. And for a while I'll be back again. Could you please paint me a Birmingham. And then the line of the song is it says that this old man. It says he looked at me with knowing eyes. And he took a canvas from his bag there by his side. And he said, son, just where in this picture would you like to be? And he said, oh, if there's any way you can, could you paint me back into her arms again? Please paint me a Birmingham. And that phrase, like like he looked at me with knowing eyes, is what struck me. Shame is a function of the eyes. And that's why so many of us are going to be terrified when we leave here and throughout this week to even venture out in letting ourselves be seen. It's because we've experienced the shameful rejection that wounds and harms. But when you experience someone seeing you with knowing eyes, it'll change your life. And to think that we can be used by God to do that. You know, in in Genesis, I mean, in in Luke 22, Jesus had told his disciples, you're all going to deny me and forsake me. And Peter's like, no, I won't. Right? Peter, who hid more than anyone else through his boasting, all these other cowards will hide and they'll run away, but I'll die or go to prison. And if you know the story, he says, well, you, Peter, of all people, are going to die. know me three times before the rooster crows. And so then there's the account of Peter being afraid and terrified and saying, no, I don't know this man, right? You're confused. And the rooster crows after he does it the third time. And it says in verse 61 that Jesus looked at him. And then Peter ran out weeping bitterly. People will often ask, hey, what do you think the look in Jesus' eyes looked like? That tells you what you think about the gospel, Answer, side note, cheating is that the look was one of deep love and affection. 
That's why he told him over and over again before it happened. It wasn't surprise. It wasn't disgust. It wasn't disdain. And, and when we experience that, I had this happen to me like two weeks ago. I was working out with a buddy of mine at my house. And Mary Rachel, we've met with doctors and therapists, and we know all the struggles and how her brain works. And she has to have her routine and her structure. So every day she comes home, and she gets her apple and her cheese stick, and she gets in her little car, and she rides down our driveway to our neighbor Ann's house. And every single time she does it, besides my fear that a car is going to come, and Stephanie and I argue about that part, it's like just going to our neighbor's house. It's like God in my ear over and over again, I love you. I love her. I'm in control of her story. You don't have to be afraid. Well, this particular day, I just finished working out with a buddy of mine, and we're talking, and Mary Rachel comes in, and I had plugged up some of my tools and was getting ready to do a project. And I know that she has her routine where she rides her little car in this little way. And I said to her, May May, don't, don't go over there. I got stuff plugged up. Don't go over there. And then I'm talking to my buddy. Well, sure enough, I turn, and she had taken her car and turned it, and it wrapped up all the cords, and boom, my tools come slamming down. And big shocker, I yell at her, what are you doing? I told you not to do that. And she like, the look on her face, she jumped back and, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I'm like, literally, in, in, a, in an instant, I'm like, I don't know if there's something else I can do that would make me feel like a more worthless, horrible piece of you know what than that. And so I grab her and I'm like, I'm sorry, ma'am, I'm sorry. And I'm, I'm giving her a hug and, and she's like, okay, let me go to Ann's. And, <laughs> She gets in her car to ride off, and I turn, and I mean, to say that there is this cloud of shame and guilt hanging on over me would be an understatement. And my buddy that was there witnessing the whole thing, I look up, and he just wraps his arms around me, and he just hugs me, and he says, I love you, man. And then he grabs my shoulders, and he makes sure I look in his eyes, and he just smiles. He looked at me with knowing eyes, and then he left. And let me tell you something, it's hard, I'm not Tracy Lawrence, I can't write songs, it's hard for me to describe how powerful that is and what it can do and just the gift it is. But God's grace is real. It's powerful. It invites us consistently out of hiding. In Romans 5, I want to read this. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now there's a lot there, and I would have spent most of my early time, I think pastorally, making sure we parse out what justification by faith means and by grace and not by works and make sure you understand all the implications, and that's important. And I would have honestly skipped over verse 2 that we now have access to stand in grace. Do you know what that means? That means to stand securely with your heavenly father's voice of affection saying, you belong to me. Remember what God asked Adam, who told you that? Whose voice is now the loudest in your life? And look at the result. You're hiding and you're terrified. But we now stand securely in his grace. You're my child. I know you. I love you. You belong to me. You don't have to live naked, afraid, and hiding anymore. And that's true. Whether you know it or not, if you're here today, you are on a journey where God is inviting you out of hiding. That's why you're here, okay, just so we don't get it twisted. And I know I could keep telling more and more stories, and we don't have time. So I'm excited for a buddy of mine who courageously is willing to come and share a little bit of his story and what this journey has looked like for him. So, Ryan, why don't you 
Come on up, brother. Good morning. My name is Ryan Stanley. My wife Kate and I and our three kids have been part of this community for a little over two years now. Uh, Matt and I had lunch a few weeks ago. It was a great time. I was sharing some very private information about the things I was processing through in my life and marriage. And then about a week later, I get a text. Hey, you know those private things you were sharing? I got an idea. And uh, I chucked the phone, phone across the room and, you know, left quickly. No. The moral of the story is, is that there's no free lunch. And so <laughs> here I am paying for my lunch in front of you all. Well, perhaps the best way to introduce myself is to say, hi, I'm Ryan, and I'm a hider. I came by it quite honestly. Let me give you three quick snapshots of my upbringing so you can kind of see where it, some of it came from. Uh, probably like many of you, I grew up in a church that was very moralistic, very religious. And so it was, hey, do good, and God loves you and approves of you, and don't do good, and God does not approve of you and is slightly mad at you. Uh, don't drink, don't cuss. Um, don't smoke, and don't hang out with those who do, and now I find myself in a church of all of those people, <laughs> and I'm quite comfortable. It's great. Um, so the message I received there is be a good boy, right? My mom, my mom, a great influence in my life. My mom became a believer. My dad's not a believer, and so my mom carried with her the sort of weight of wanting her children to be godly, adults, you know, uh, like all of us do, and, and train them to know and love God. Um, in the midst of that, though, I heard a message that was, don't be like your dad. Um, grow up to be a godly man, not like your dad is. And so I have that message also. And then my dad, he's a self-made man, first one in his family to go, go to college. He got his master's, very successful in business many times over, taught himself guitar, at a young age, um, and then became a prolific guitarist, plays with famous people. Gibson just sends him guitars and stuff. It's crazy. And so you can imagine what he wants, and that is he wants to make sure his kids are successful and that they get the same opportunities that he does. And so there was a lot of intensity there. The, the statement that I would say was kind of just get it right. If you're going to talk to my dad, you want to make sure you had your ducks in a row before you did. So my family, my brother and sister and I joke about remembering being around the table and going over like math facts with dad. And if you responded with an answer that was a little shaky, like six, he would say, is that a question or is that an answer? So that, that will do something to you, right? All three of those, kind of you mix those together, you got a toxic cocktail of hiding your sins and weaknesses and pretending to be someone that you're not. Fast forward a bit, I graduated from seminary, I was a pastor for 12 years, a church planter, I was, worked for a theological training organization, wrote and developed curriculum, um, and a local church pastor. But what I came to realize is that my emotional world was very underdeveloped. I remember being at the network conference of our church network, and the guys up front were the guys who did all the soul care and counseling for all the pastors in our network, and they're talking about emotional awareness and emotional health, and I was so confused and so uncomfortable. And I remember going up to them afterwards and saying, I'm not sure totally what you were talking about. I think I might be an emotional zero, but I need help. I need you to help me understand. And so that led to several years of 
counseling and growth and understanding, a journey that I'm definitely still on. Some of you might find yourself in a similar spot, maybe yourself or someone you're married to or, or a friend of yours, whatever it might be. I want to give you some unsolicited advice, and that is just show yourself some grace in those moments. Be kind to yourself. Treat yourself like God treats you, the way he looks at you, like Matt was saying, with those type of eyes. I remember beginning to try to share with people, but they might get frustrated, like, I don't really know you. You're not deep. I would say, I'm not trying to. I'm not actively trying to hide. I just don't know what to say because I haven't done the work to unearth things in there. So I wasn't trying to hide, honestly. I just was confused. Maybe that's you, you too. Well, my discussion with Matt, the particulars of that, he asked me, how's life? How's your family? How's your marriage going? So I shared with him. I said, you know, I've realized recently that I'm a very insecure person. Think back to my story, and it makes sense, doesn't it, that I would be a very insecure person at my core. One of the places God so graciously and kindly gave to me to receive security from is my wife, emotional connection from her. So right now, after 22 years of marriage, I'm starting a journey of emotionally connecting with my wife. And I was kind of embarrassed to say, I told Matt, but if you would have asked me early in our marriage, hey, do you need Kate? It's my wife. I would have said, I, I love Kate. We love hanging out. She laughs at my jokes. Like, it's great. But if you would have said, no, do you need her? I would have said, ah, no, I don't think I, I don't think I need her. That's pretty embarrassing to say. Now, in this new season that God has welcomed us into, it's really disorienting. I'm kind of in stage one of understanding some of those things and that I need this emotional connection. I see how she can be my security and affirmation and and all those things, but I don't really know how to go about making that happen. And so she wants to help, but I don't really even have the verbiage yet or the examples to give her that can help her engage in that way. And honestly, sometimes it's frustrating for me, but then I realize I was a part of creating this environment, this emotionally separate environment for 20 years. Not intentionally, um, but I was. And so it's not going to be fixed tomorrow. It's going to take some time. And I don't want you to hear, hear that our marriage was terrible. It wasn't terrible. It's been great. But I'm just now coming to realize this one piece of it. So I need, I, I see how much I need from her. Uh, but we're struggling to, to kind of live that out. And this we're experiencing after 22 years of marriage, after me going to seminary and becoming a professional Christian, you know, a pastor, and, and uh, even going to the Soul Care Institute, a two-year institute you go to to learn how to help people walk through things like this. And here I am struggling to walk through it myself. It's going to sound crazy maybe for those of you in this situation, but sitting down with Kate over dinner or whatever and talking this out with her has been extremely helpful. And she is the gracious listener that I need, who just sits and has those gracious eyes and says, thank you for sharing, and will not judge me, uh, will not bring condemnation upon me, but just listen. And I pray that you can find someone like that to just receive and hold your story. Two things then before I end. Number one, which Matt already really said, which is vulnerability 
grows in the deep, rich soil of the gospel. Until you hear Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. In the Greek, that word no means no. Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero, zilch, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Only love, only affection, only all of his pleasure coming at you 100%. It's only when you go and, and go back to that well and drink over and over and over that you might come to the point where you would engage in vulnerability. So don't aim at vulnerability. Aim at the gospel. Drink deeply of it, and you'll see the beautiful fruit of vulnerability come out of it. Secondly, the good news of the gospel is not that you can become more vulnerable. It is that you are forgiven and loved despite your performance this week in vulnerability or any other righteous requirement that you put upon yourself. You're saved because Christ is yours and he did everything for you in his place. So, to all my fellow hiders, those who pretend to be something you're not, those who can't forgive themselves for the way they've hidden, those who are holding grudges against someone who's not sharing with you, those who are frustrated that your spouse or friend won't open up to you, maybe even those who are emotionally not aware enough to even know what this is about. There's good news, and the good news is that God's relentless love is pointed right at you. And so while I'm a hider and so are you, there's something much more primary to our identity, and that is that we are a delighted in and beloved child of God. And the work of Christ on your behalf, there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that can ever change that. There's no condemnation. There's only love, affection, and freedom. Hallelujah. Amen. Yeah, when I texted Ryan, I led with, I want you to know how thankful I am, your courage. It was a gift. I, I appreciate you. I'm excited to get to know you. His immediate response was, I knew I shouldn't have gone to lunch with you. <laughs> but it was amazing because even the whole setup, we've never really connected. And he's like, let's go to lunch. And I'm like, great, man, whatever. I'm flexible. You pick. And he's like, you probably want some dumb vegan salad. But I want to go to this burger, burger place. And I'm like, all right, great, whatever. So he goes to this burger place. Ryan does construction. He's got a big old truck with all his tools in the back. He's got a beard tatted up. He's muscular. He's got a rogue hoodie on. It's like every single, when Conroy says American men are allowed just as many tears, but our culture won't let us shed them, it's like every single setup is this can just be some bro fest. And I'm like, we're walking up, and there's a dude outside with a Doberman not even on a leash. And I'm like, what in the hell is happening right now? I didn't say, I said, what in the heck is happening right now? And so to say I was surprised and shocked at your courage when I'm like, yo, like, what's up with you? And for him to say, man, I just, I don't really know how to connect with my wife. Like the courage and the privilege and the gift that was, man, it was just amazing. And so thank you. All right, let me pray and then we'll respond and worship. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God of relentless love. And that you allowed yourself to be shamed and ridiculed and mocked, stripped naked on our behalf so that we could be clothed, covered, accepted, and delighted in. Thank you that nothing can ever change it. We pray by your Holy Spirit that even in super small degrees, you'll help us to believe it even more as we respond now in worship. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.